0: We occasionally run across these uh, scripture passages with long lists of names, and, and it's strange, these long lists of names, because we don't know any of these people. Um, but she's reading from Romans chapter 16, um, and so I wanted to explain that a little bit. It's great to be back. Lawrence, thank you for your, um, he's gone now, but for the expression of affection. Uh, certainly, three weeks was a long time, my longest trip, and uh, we certainly missed uh, everybody and being here with the church um i've got one more update to post the the updates that i typically post on these kinds of trips are explaining the the kind of work that we're doing and the effect that we're having in the lives of the people and the churches and the leadership that we're working with in in portugal and in mozambique Um, but i wanted to 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 conclude uh, this trip's uh, updates with um, some reflections on what the experiences have have taught me and and how they've affected me and how those folks in those churches have instructed us so be looking for that this week anyway we are going to work through the book of romans backwards all right Uh, and let me just explain why for a a few moments Uh, the book of romans has a long history one of the most um, significant pieces of literature in western civilization and certainly in the church especially since the reformation uh, one of the, the books that has had uh, one of the strongest effects on, on churches and theology of, of all denominations within, within the church. Um, but it's often treated as primarily a, like a theological treatise. You pick up a commentary on Romans and it's going to say it's Paul's most complete and systematic treatise of the gospel. Um, and for a long time since I started reading Romans, and Romans is, is probably my favorite book of the Bible, it is the book that I first studied when I began to seriously study the scriptures as a, as a Christian in college. And, uh, and it has had a very significant impact on my life. I love the book of Romans. Um, but early on, I, w- I found it strange. If you'll pick up, if you go looking at commentaries for Romans, for example, you'll see many commentaries have like Romans 1 through 8. And then sometimes it's continued Romans 9 through 16. Uh, so not 1 through 8 is, is considered to be one of the just the densest and most thorough um explanations and and uh really (laughs) in in engaging of the gospel in all of scripture and so there's this heavy emphasis on the doctrinal and theological aspects of the book of romans and it's been that way for a long time and oftentimes commentators and and ministers and preachers and pastors uh, unfortunately um, kind of put less emphasis on the second half of the book of Romans, and especially the the last few chapters, which is where the occasion of the book of Romans um, really comes into play. And these names in chapter 16 are, are a critical part of the, the occasion. So every epistle, really I would say every book of the Bible, but especially letters, are occasional, which means that there's a specific occasion that Paul was writing to, and the entire book, the entire letter, um, is, is structured and written to that particular occasion. And so, it's not just this arbitrary um, academic explanation of the gospel. There is something going on, on the ground, in the city of Rome, with the Christians and the churches there, that occasioned this huge monstrous in-depth complex epistle uh, to that to that city to the Christians in that city and so um, but it's oftentimes neglected and so um, in in pre- this is the second time we've preached Romans at Twin Cities Church the first time was in 2009 many of you were not a part of the church in 2009 is early on in our days um, but as we looked at preaching through this this book again um, in the context that we find ourselves, you know, we're just asking the questions, how are we going to uh, contextualize this book and our series around um, what's going on in our world? If every letter is occasional, then what are, what are the occasions in our world that, are ad- that this book addresses, and, and how can we communicate um, this book in a way that strongly reflects that occasion and the importance? And so um, I, you know, I was checking out the, the new books on Romans since the last time I've worked through it. And one of the books that I picked up was called Reading Romans Backwards. And so it starts with chapter 16. And, and I just uh, the, the light bulb went off, and I said, you know what? I'm going to preach through Romans backwards. Because we're going to see, before we get into the deep theology, before we get into all the arguments and things about predestination and righteousness and justification and all these things that have been traditionally um, Ascribed to the book of Romans as its predominant issues, we're going to see actually what was going on in the church that facilitated the writing of this great book. And so, as you can see, um, the, as, as Becky read, there's 27 names listed, um, and, and we're going to get into some of the uniquenesses of those names as we go through, but 27 names are listed. There is no other book in the New Testament like it that goes into such detail about the people that Paul and his team wanted to greet in the local context. And so we're going to see that the city of Rome and the churches in Rome were experiencing a lot of the same types of things that we are experiencing as as Christians and as churches uh, in the city of Minneapolis and St. Paul in the metropolitan area. and really, uh, what is going on in a lot of the cities across the world the great metropolitan areas uh, and the nations of this world and, and, and what we are experiencing this time um, from a from a whole bunch of standpoints so one of the things that i i think that is really clear to to all of us um, is our increasingly polarized context when i say polarized we we don't see ourselves as a common people anymore we are increasingly uh, separated by an, a whole variety of, of identities and their opposites. Um, and in the midst of, you know, we've, we've talked about the secularization that is occurring in this, in this world, uh, in a, a movement away from acknowledging that anything supernatural, anything spiritual, um, it really doesn't have anything to do in our world. Doesn't have any bearing on what's going on in our world. We may, people may affirm the existence of a spiritual realm. They may affirm the existence of God or or even of the devil and of this of, of an unseen realm. But increasingly, even within believers, um, it's it, it's increasingly easy to live our lives in such a way as if God doesn't exist. And that's what it really means to be secular. You may believe, you may believe that God exists. And you may believe in the spiritual realm, but because the structures of our common life no longer affirm such things, um, our day-to-day life, where we find meaning, where we find purpose, where we find value, um, the people that we, that we identify ourselves with um, aren't connected necessarily to... To God and ultimate purposes that that are found in God. Our culture no longer affirms those things. So in this this vacuum of secularization, we have what is unique in terms of history happening in the West, and when I say the West, America and Europe, um, we have no common cultural understanding about the meaning and purpose of life. We have no common cultural understanding about a, a common identity that we have regardless of our, of, our, of our race or gender or any of these types of things. We, we don't have a, a, a cultural framework that's transcendent in nature that gives us a moral foundation. Um, everybody kind of is up to their own. And so what we find is these, these emerging narratives in the midst of this vacuum, these emerging narratives of, of nationality, of race, of class, of gender, of political party becoming the defining identities or the defining narratives that we are building our lives around. And so we increasingly find ourselves on one side or another of these of these narratives, of these of these polarizing identities and we f- we find strength in them. And so if you just take for example, um, nationality, um, or let's take or race, um, you can be on either side of that of that continuum of that polar divide. Uh, if you are a minority, you can find strength now as a minority in in claiming for justice, and and the world is in a in a place where. There has been such a recognition of injustices done to minority groups, to the poor, to the, tradi- to the groups that are traditionally oppressed. There's been such a, a recognition of that that there is a lot of strength and power given to uh, those who find themselves in the minority um, because of the it's because of the reaction. And so, whether it's it's the, the Native American causes and things as, as Seemingly insignificant as the renaming of a lake and so I I don't know if any of you are familiar that live outside of Minneapolis Um, We have a lake in our neighborhood. It's historically been called Lake Calhoun Uh, Well, it was named after one of the vice presidents who who had a very strong pro-slavery agenda and and very racist ideals, okay so There is a large movement to get the name, to get the lake renamed Bade Makaska, which goes back to the name that the um, Native Americans originally gave the lake. This is a huge source of conflict uh, in our area, in the newspapers. And it went to uh, the city, it went to the county, it went to the state, it went to the federal board, because all of those people and places and institutions have roles in. The naming of our lakes, huge conflict because there's identity around things like lakes and and places. And so we have these power struggles going back and forth. And obviously, so the the minority groups who have been oppressed in the past have a place of power in crying out for justice. And obviously, those who are still in places of power um, feel and recognize and want to hold on to that power and the structures and institutions of our culture are still giving a lot of power to those, to those groups who are politically powerful, financially powerful. Um, so there, there's power. On whatever side you're on in these various polarities, nationality, race, gender, party, there's power to grab for, there's strength to grab for. And this is the kind of dynamic that was present in the city of Rome, and was playing out in the churches. And it is a a grab for strength. It is the the desire for strength, the desire to be in a place of what the text also calls uh, a place of righteousness, a place of righteousness. And We find that if we we look into all of these various uh, divides and polarizations, if we look below the surface, we can see the desire to be be strong, to be whole, to be complete, to be fulfilled, to be respected, to be good. Um, And these are all ideas that are are wrapped up in this, this idea of righteousness. Uh, Jonathan Haidt is a um, uh, not a Christian. He's a political writer, a public policy guy. Written a number of books, but his, one of his most popular books is called uh, "The Righteous Mind," and in it he argues that we are all pursuing righteousness. We are all p- pursuing righteousness, and the idea of righteousness um, is is I mean it, it's this this quest be quote right now well, what does right mean uh, I think that right has has uh, several dimensions to be right in terms of how you uh, view yourself am I a good person do people respect me for who I am in my own rightness uh, do I have a respect for others and is the life I'm living um, good or wise is it fulfilling these are various aspects of what it means to be right we need to see it much broader than just uh, moral virtue Uh, charles taylor argues that our sense of self has to be built around a sense of of good okay or a good of uh, a sense of righteousness and that this righteousness um is is these three things how we view ourselves in the world in particular How do people view us am i being a respectable person do i respect others and is am i living the good life and so we are all in in pursuit of of these things to be seen as as good and right in the world that we live in to contribute in a way that we see as good and right in the world that we live in and to to get the appreciation of others the challenge comes the challenge comes in the different definitions of righteousness. What does it mean to be good? What does it mean to be right? What does it mean to be good to fellow human beings? And what is it good for them? What does it mean for them to respect us or me because of our own goodness? And this is where the conflict comes in. Because so the, the subtitle to his book is "The Righteous Mind: Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion." And you can say politics and religion and race and gender and party and this whole list of all of these various identities that are now being thrown out there that are are creating a world that is increasingly polarized and increasingly divided. And it is very easy for us to get into positions where um, we put ourselves with groups. He argues that we get our sense of righteousness from our circumstances. So if we've been in places where we have been the victim, where we have been oppressed, where we have been taken advantage of and abused, um, we're going to have a definition of righteousness. Uh, How I treat people, how people treat me, what it means to live the good life, what, what justice is. Those circumstances are going to define what we view as righteous. And then the groups that we associate with. Now, if we're in a place where we're the privilege, and so Romans is about privilege, and Romans is about power. It is the, the dynamic present in the city of Rome and in the Roman churches is about privilege and power. So again, if we haven't had privilege or power and have been on the side of the victim, our understanding of what righteousness and the good life is going to be determined by that. If we've been on the side of privilege and on the side of power, whether we knew it or not. Okay, and as, as kind of the argument goes, if you're in a place of privilege and power, you oftentimes don't see it. All right? And you're going to have a definition of what is good and right and true for yourself and for others and what others expect from you based upon your circumstances. And you're, and each group is going to be living life in the world uh, in a quest for righteousness. And so what's what's happening is that all of the camps feel threatened all right and this is a lot of the backdrop to to the trump election in 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 2016 and a lot of the backdrop to the to the propaganda and all of the the hubbub around the election coming up in 2020 and the midterms in 2018 right everybody is feeling threatened because everybody's sense of righteousness is being threatened and undermined. And and we find strength in living within our our definitions of what righteousness is, what is is good, what is true, what is good for me, what is good for the world, what is just and right and fair. Uh, We want justice. And so those who have not had privilege and power feel that those in privilege and power have taken advantage of them In a whole number of ways, depending on which group you're identifying yourself with, whether it's nationality or race or gender, etc. And so there's going to be a crying out from those who have been in these places where they've been victims of those with privilege and power, and they're going to be wanting the things, the positions, the power that those with privilege and power have had. And those in privilege and power uh, who felt who feel like they have gotten to a place w- through hard work, through intellect, through determination, through perseverance, through sacrifice, etc., 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 feel as if um, what they deserve is threatened and can be taken away. And so um, it's a complex situation, and I probably haven't done the best job in describing it, but I think that you all have a sense of where we're at from a cultural standpoint and the challenges that, that it poses to us as a church um, because it is very easy for us to fall into these large narratives, all right, because all of us to some degree fit in one of these narratives. We all are gendered. We all have a nationality. We probably all have a background with a political affiliation that we still hold on to if you haven't maybe switched when you went to college or had various other experiences that maybe made you rethink some of those things. So we all have some sense of identity built around these narratives and identities that are so prevalent in our world. And I think that it would be fair and honest for all of us to acknowledge that we find some strength in those. We find some sense of what we're going to see in, this, in the text of Romans, a sense of justification or a sense of righteousness in, in these other narratives and identities. And I want to emphasize that they, they provide for us some form of strength and that we, we use them for some form of strength, economic narratives, gender narratives, um, nationality narratives, we find some strength in them. Paul wants to give us, in the book of Romans, a different narrative, A, a defining narrative that overwhelms all of the other ones. And he wants to give us a sense of identity that overwhelms all of these other identities. That really washes away, washes away all of these categories and narratives and identities that our culture would put upon us and that our culture would have us um, become participants in. And so the context in Rome, very socially and economically segregated. And we're going to spend a little bit more time next week on some of the specifics around the city of Rome and the specifics around the Twin Cities and how it relates with our with our sense of self, who we are as a church, as individuals, as families, and what our mission is. But Rome was a very segregated society, culturally, economically, racially. Um, there, this, the, the population was made up of slaves, real slaves. Okay? And we have slaves today, different forms than back then. What we have now is probably included back then, former slaves people that were freed but still had obligations under the slavery system because of the expectations placed upon them by the the aristocracy Um, there were immigrants immigrants from all over the world there were citizens and there were the the political and economic elites obviously so it was a a metropolitan city very similar to what we have now but i would say uh, even more extremely so in terms of some of the disparities. Lots of racial tensions. The Jews were actually, um, prior to the writing of the Book of Romans, and it just just a few years before, there was actually an edict by the emperor that, that um, required all of the Jews to move out of the city of Rome. Now, if you could imagine, uh, one of the mayors of Minneapolis for St. Paul Okay, or the Metropolitan Council, depending on how much power you think that they have, um, they would just—they just would say, you know what? We are requiring all of the people from this group leave. Okay, and you just name the group. Name the group. Any of the groups that those particular individuals were finding threatening. Okay, but it was like a like an ethnic group or a racial group. So just boom, you all leave. And so as a city. There was an entire um, ethnic minority thrown out okay that is that is just flat out blatant discrimination right okay? and so you have the government promoting this type of an agenda now they eventually all came back that was canceled and they all came back and so that was the context for Rome so you have You have a city that has this this very uh, strong disposition against a certain minority group. And then the minority group comes back. What is going to be the sense of things still in that city? What is going to be the flavor? What is going to be the, the, what racial tensions are going to exist? And so um, that's part of the backdrop. So as you would imagine, you had a lot of anti-government, anti-emperor groups, okay? So just, they didn't have YouTube back then, but they had the same kinds of things. They had all of these underground um, hate groups, racial hate groups, emperor hate groups, government hate groups, the same same type of thing. Religious tensions religious tensions one of the reasons why the emperor threw all the jews out is because he he at that time thought that the christians were all jews and that the jews were christians because of all of the uproar that the christians were causing throughout the roman empire and so he didn't want that to come to rome and so part of the reasoning was that he, he didn't know and so he thought anything associated with christianity was automatically jewish and that's so he's really also anti-christian Anti-Jewish and anti christian kind of all wrapped together in in an uncritical understanding of what Judaism and Christianity were back then. And so you had racial and religious ignorance influencing the, the political climate and the statues and laws of the city and of the country. And so, again, not an unfamiliar context. So, what is Jesus's vision for his people in a city like this? What is Jesus's vision for his people in a city like ours? Well, I think chapter sixteen begins to help us paint this vision, and, and it's it's a it's it's um, we're we're gonna continue to fill this out as we go through half of fifteen next week and fourteen and the rest of fifteen the week following that, and then the 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 app the applicable, the occasional things are going to be real strong in these first few weeks. Um, and that will continue to fill out this picture of what Rome is like and what the vision for the Twin Cities, I think, that Christ has through, through the book of Romans. And so, again, there's a lot of diversity in chapter 16 expressing all of these names because names always have some sort of meaning. And names typically have some sort of nationality or names typically have some sort of, um, there's a lot of things that we hang on names. And so scholars have been studying these names for last centuries. And so you have 27 names and the groups that are listed, the scholars believe that there's probably six to seven, what we would call house churches in the city of Rome. Some of the house churches are present uh, in poorer districts. Some of the house churches are present in more well-off districts. Um, of the 27 named people, you have wealthy businessmen and businesswomen. You have male apostles and female apostles. So the Apostle Junia is addressed in this. And these this was, seems like it was a, a husband and wife, I um, can't remember the guy's name, but it's a husband and wife apostolic team that scholars believe were some of the first Christians— during Jesus' life still on earth, that witnessed Jesus' death and resurrection, and were an early husband and wife apostolic team. Paul says they were in Christ before he was, okay? And that they were well-known amongst the apostles, not amongst like the apostles knew of them. It was of the group of apostles they were well-known. You had slaves and former slaves you had people that Aristotle literally called living tools. And they named people as if they were a tool. Like they would give them a name. Some of these names are, are what they would aspire their slave to become. Like I, can't, I should have had a specific example. I thought I had it in my mind, but evidently I didn't. But uh, one of the names it meant like, um, like to be noble. And what was common is that, again, they would give names saying what the, or, or hard working they would give names that they would aspire their slaves to become there were jews there were greeks there were romans there were persians and and other nationalities okay it was a very diverse group of people here in the roman church there were people from herod's household there were people from a household that was one of the there's a man named narcissus um who was one of the, the chief and very wealthy advisors to the emperor Claudius, and members of his household were a part of the Roman church. We don't know if it was, it was just slaves. It seems to indicate that some of them were slaves, or it could have actually been family members of this, of this very important high-up advisor to the emperor. Um, and again, men and women of both high and low standing, that Paul calls out and calls them with a very, a very affectionate, in a very affectionate way, and so it's a very diverse group of people from all uh, many of the nationalities and races that made up the city of Rome. Um, high people from an economic and um, uh, socio-economic standpoint, and, and low people from a socio-economic standpoint, and so you could imagine um, that all of these various dynamics present within the city of Rome, in their politics, in their religion in their economic life, were all present. All the tensions were present within the church. In the midst of this large address, Paul uses the term, in Christ ten times. In Christ ten times. All of these people. Yes, they had names which gave them, and and statuses which placed them in Roman society. But he said that they were all In Christ which meant that they were all in God's family they were all identified by Jesus Christ which is what we're gonna work strongly through especially when we get to chapters 4 through 8 what does it mean to be in Christ what does it mean to be in Christ's family which is what is addressed in Romans 9 through 15 from a practical standpoint and from an idea and theological standpoint but to Paul These people were not known by all these identities and narratives. They were identified as being in Christ and in God's cosmic plan for all of the nations. And he used familial and affectionate terms. Frank Thielman says this. He says, This characteristic that everyone is part of the same family within Christianity brought great offense in the ancient Roman world which depended in part upon strictly observed social barriers to maintain its coherence and keep the already powerful in power. That's Paul's call. That's Jesus' calling upon us as a church to recognize that we as individuals are first and foremost in Christ and members of his family. These narratives that, that are so easily um, latched onto in the midst of our weakness, whether out of fear that what we have is going to be taken away or undermined or out of out of a sense of justice that we want to be vindicated. It's easy to latch onto these narratives, even within the context of being a Christian and a member of, of a church. And we can use these These fears and insecurities and these desires for justification, a very strong Roman's word, for vindication, for justice, for protection, we can see those within the context of our Christian identity, and we can even make those our stronger identity. If from them we are seeking strength. Paul is calling this group of people, as we'll see, to unity. Unity amidst the temptation to take on another identity. And the section that that Becky didn't read this morning is, Paul says this, he says, Be careful that you do not get wrapped up in all of these ideas, obstacles, narratives that would pull you into them, that separate, that create division." I want you to be innocent as to what is evil and wise to what is good. And he's talking about, he's talking about these narratives and these other identities that we could latch on to. It's tempting for victims to use their state of weakness as their source of strength to grab out for power. And it's tempting for the victors, those who have gotten ahead, to see their state of success as something to hold on to, and that their life ahead has been set for them. It's it's easy for us to see strength in the identities that the world's providing. Paul is calling us to avoid these things. He's calling us to avoid these things. And he concludes the book, he says this, Now to him who is able to strengthen you, Now, to him who is able to strengthen you. At the beginning of the book, he says this, I I long to see you, chapter 1, in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be strong, that you may be strengthened. And so he unloads over 16 chapters his spiritual gift, his gospel. In the midst of the weakness that the people of Rome felt, whether they were slaves, okay, whether they were freed persons, whether they were ethnic minorities in the midst of the weakness, or whether they were in power feeling like their power was being threatened, which was what prompted Nero, the emperor, Claudius, the emperor, to, to cast him out. He felt threatened. See? The emperor felt threatened and was longing for strength. So he took action against these minority groups. So it's, it's, it's victims long for strength and those in power... The victors long for strength. And Paul says, now to him who is able to strengthen you in my gospel. We will never get to a place of that strength, of that righteousness that we're longing for, if if we hold on to the world's definitions of them. We'll never have it. We'll never have it. Whether it's money or power or, or, or sex or job or position, whatever it is that we are seeking after for a sense of strength and satisfaction, a sense of righteousness, a strong sense of who we are in this world and how the world sees us, we're never going to find that, that peaceful, confident, steadfast strength outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to see over the course of the weeks here that we look at the book of Romans, we're going to see how the gospel provides a whole different narrative that really needs to become our narrative, throwing off all of these other ones. No longer are we going to to put ourselves within a storyline other than that of God's work in this world. He's going to give us a righteousness, a new identity, a new way of seeing ourselves that overwhelms all of these other identities that the world has to show, and he's going to show how these things are going to really provide us the strength that we're longing for to fulfill our deepest longings. Uh, Jonathan Haidt says this, I'll close. He says, we all are born with an obsession for righteousness. It is the normal human condition. It is a feature of our evolutionary design. We're born with it this longing and obsession for righteousness and for the strength that comes from that. Let me pray.